Yeah, we get it. We get it. There's a lot of exploring to do. There's a lot of stuff to do on Sunday mornings in our state, and that's why we're having our new service time uh, just for you, 6 p.m. starting September 8th. We're going to have that as our third, our night service. So I hope you guys are getting excited about that. I think some of you guys are going to commit to that. If you're interested in that, mark it on your connection card. We're going to have a dry run of that in a few weeks. Get excited about all the volunteers and everybody starting that service off right. We're excited about it. I hope you guys are too. It's going to be fun, and you can invite your friends too, right? We have this great marketing team that put together this campaign, volunteers who are giving their time. They're experts in their field. So we're really excited about um, this service time, and I hope you guys will and will be excited to invite your friends. Okay, a couple things going on around here, too. We have our Mexico team that left yesterday, our Mexico Go team, global outreach team. They left yesterday. We sent them off, and they got there last night. And tomorrow morning, they're kicking off a vacation Bible school VBS for a very unreached area. I don't know if you knew this, but central Mexico is a region of the world that is one of the unreached people groups of the world. Less than 2% have heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in that area. And we've partnered with a couple local churches down there. We have missionaries that we support, Dan and Melinda Nelson down there. And now we send this, this incredible team, a few adults and a lot of teenagers. Pray for the adults. And pray for the kids this week. And in fact, are you guys okay if we just stop and pray for them right now? Is that all right? Let's do that. Um, Lord God, we pray for this GO team, these, these men and women, these teenagers that are willing to um, give up time in their summer, give up the, the potential of, of earning income, and they're giving that all and even spending money so they can go and serve you, that they can love a people who don't know you so that those people could come to know you. Lord, I pray that their good deeds this week would shine. They would shine before the men, women, and children that they serve, that those 200-plus kids who come every day would hear the good news and that they would believe and follow Jesus, but that they would bring their families into the churches there, that we would have to help to support more new churches in that area. And, Lord God, we just pray for the good news to transform lives and communities there in Mexico. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm so glad you guys are here. My name is Matt Wolf, the lead pastor. We're all about helping people follow Jesus. And one of the things we're about is, is that collision of grace and truth. So last week we embarked on this new three-week series, three-week journey. So you're right in the middle today. And if you're like, well, I missed it last week, you have to leave right now. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm going to catch you up. Um, we're in a, a tricky one, as you can see, the, the interesting title that we have today, Sex, Lies, and Jesus. It's going to be a fascinating message today. Um, but we're talking about this idea of grace and truth. So I'm going to catch you up a little bit on this concept. So I used the metaphor of that tug-of-war rope, right, last week. And, and what happens is that we are pulled in two different directions as followers of Jesus. We are pulled by grace. We want to show kindness and love and acceptance to everyone. We love people. We care about people deeply, even people that disagree with us. And we love them and we want, they're our friends, they're our family members, they're people that are so dear to our hearts and we love them. We want to show compassion and welcoming to them. So we're pulled in that direction, right? But then we also read things in the Bible that's God's truth. And we want to be firm on that too. So we pull in this direction, right, with that rope. And we pulled, and it can be like a tug of war. Last week we literally had a game of tug of war that we played with a couple of guys on the stage because we feel like we're getting pulled in those two directions and there's this tension we feel inside of us as we're getting pulled by grace, pulled by truth. Well, which one is it? We talked about how each one of us is probably one of those or the other. We're the grace person and we just want to welcome everyone. We never want to say a bad word about anyone. We just want everyone to feel good. If someone gets left out of a party, we're the one calling up and inviting them. Nobody's getting left out. We're including everyone. You're that kind of person. You're pulled to grace. 
But then there's also the people who are like, I know what the truth is. This is right. I'm going to stand firm on it. And that's the only way I'm uncompromising. And you pull it this way. Well, the problem is, is we lean towards one side or the other and we can get pulled so far that we get out of bounds, that we get out of bounds. And it's so hard to stay in the middle. So I, I taught you a little bit of math last week. I know that's your favorite subject. It wasn't mine. Um, it, a little bit of math, but it's simple math. Not easy, but simple. And the first equation was that grace minus truth is chaos. So if we're always saying, hey, we want to be kind and welcoming to everyone and just accept everyone just as they are. Well, if there's no truth at all, it can lead to chaos. And the example I used of that was a family adopting a child. To adopt the child is beautiful. It's incredible. It is a sheer act of grace. My family adopted my younger brother. And we say, hey, I don't care where you come from, what baggage you're bringing in. You are our child. It's beautiful, isn't it? You are accepted just the way you are. Grace is undeserved kindness. You don't deserve this, but we care about you. We love you. You're ours. Now, the family with grace without truth then says, okay, now do whatever you want. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to eat with the family. You don't have to follow our rules. Here's the matches. Make sure you don't. No, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, that's scary, right? That's chaos. It's scary for children in that kind of setting, too. We want to have some boundaries. So, yes, there's that sheer act of grace to welcome the child in, but people need some truth to know what's right and what's wrong. So, without truth, grace alone is just chaos. But then we learned another equation. For the people who just have truth without grace, well, that's cruel. That is pure cruelty, judgmentalism, hypocrisy even. Because these are the people that when, when the family adopts the child or they're looking at the child and they say, hey, you, you've messed up. You've done some bad things. You're going to pass around from foster family to foster family because you're messed up. And until you get your act together and you start living by the right rules and going to school every, every day and following all the rules. And then after you do that for about six months, maybe we'll let you into our home. What is that? That's cruel. That's cruel. That's judgmental. See, we don't like truth without grace, even though these people might have the right rules in their home. It's cruel. But then there's a third equation we learned as well, is that grace plus truth equals love. When you hold both of those in tension, holding grace tight, holding truth tight, and when you just hold it right there, you're right in the middle where you're supposed to be. It, it feels tension. It's hard. It's difficult. So even though it's a simple math, it's difficult, right? It's challenging. But when you do that, it's love. And that's what you have to have. You have to have both of those in a family, in a relationship, in a church, even in a society. Hey, we've got to have grace and truth. And the problem is people get balanced, way out of balance, right? Towards one side or the other. And we learned last week that Jesus is actually the perfect example of this. In John 1.14, we read about Jesus, that he came from the Father full of grace and truth. Full of 100% grace, 100% truth, always to everyone. And we love that about Jesus. We examine the story of Jesus with this woman caught in adultery. And you weren't supposed to think about that too much. But she was caught in the act of adultery. She is a sexual sinner. And they drag this woman in front of everybody. And Jesus is there teaching the crowds. These men grab her, right? They're shaming her. They're putting a scarlet letter on her. And they're saying, look what she did. She was caught. She is guilty. And then what does Jesus say? After drawing a little bit in the sand, he says, the woman who is without, or sorry, the person who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. If you've never sinned, go ahead and condemn her. You can be the judge. And, and we learned, especially when it comes to sexual sin, Jesus said, hey, it's not just your actions, but even your mind. 
If you look with lust at someone, you have committed adultery in your mind. You have sinned. And those men knew it. And one by one, each one of those men who were the truth people, we're going to stand firm on the truth. This is the law that she is condemned. She should be judged and killed. Each one of them left. One by one by one. Until just Jesus was left with the woman. And then he says, where are they? Where are they? And she says, well, they left. He says, well, then neither do I condemn you. See, Jesus in that moment had pure grace, 100% grace for that woman, forgiving her right there, caught in the act. I have grace for you, love for you, compassion for you. You are forgiven. No more judgment. 100% grace. Yet remember what he said next? So go and sin no more. He didn't say, oh, you're fine. Keep doing what you're doing. He said, no, that was wrong. You're loved and you're accepted. You're forgiven right now. Go and sin no more. He perfectly held up grace and truth. And that's why Jesus was full of grace and truth. And that is why he's the perfect example for us. How we can be people filled with grace and truth in the same way as Jesus. That's what we're called to because that is love. And that's why people love Jesus. It was even why he was called a friend of sinners. He hung out with the worst of sinners. The people that no one would talk to. The outcasts. He was with them and they loved him just as much as he loved them. And that's what we're called to as well as individuals and as a church. So I gave that message last week. And then I got a lot of questions. A lot of comments and a lot of conversations were, well, Matt, what about marriage? What about sexuality? And I kind of anticipated that this would be the tough one because this is probably the hardest, most challenging era, uh, area, especially right now, right? We're dealing with this in our culture. Ten ye- in the last 10 years, so much has shifted in what our culture thinks about marriage and sexuality. So how can we be the grace and truth people? This is challenging, right? So what we're going to do in this message is we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus and that's it. We're going to look at what Jesus taught, the truth that he said about marriage and sexuality, and we're going to talk about the grace that he showed in the area of marriage and sexuality, okay? So what's going to happen, what's going to happen in this message is that the grace people are going to hear the truth things. We're going to see three truths that Jesus teaches us about marriage and sexuality. The grace people are going to struggle with it. They're going to feel uncomfortable. And I want you to kind of just stay seated, you know, just listen. Think about it, pray about it. And then uh, at the end of my message, we're going to talk about the grace of Jesus and the truth people are going to be struggling. They're going to be uncomfortable. I don't know. I don't know. So I'm making everyone uncomfortable today. You're like, why did, I, why did I wake up today? I should have slept in. But we need this because this is such a challenging topic for us. So we're just going to address the hard topic. We're going to talk about it and we're going to look at Jesus who himself is full of grace and truth. He's the perfect example of what love is. So we can learn from him. So we can learn to imitate him in our lives, in our families, and in our churches. You guys with me? You ready for this? So first we're going to look at these three um, truths that Jesus shares. And I think to put it in the context that I think will help us understand, because the Pharisees who come to Jesus again, these religious leaders, they had some questions that were slightly different for his day. But Jesus's answers actually help us with some of the questions we're dealing with in our day. So these three lies that Jesus kind of addresses and gives three truths to. So here's the first lie is that marriage is whatever we want it to be whatever we want it to be. And you go and you talk to five different people. What is marriage? You get five different answers. It's true in our society. You get five different answers. Oh, it's two people who love each other, who are committed to each other. Oh, you know, some people say, well, it's uh, a man and a woman. Some people say two men, two women. It could be multiple people. 
It's whatever we want it to be in our culture, right? There's been a big shift in what marriage is. People think, well, this is a lifelong covenant, or some people think, well, it works for time, and then maybe now the kids are raised and out of the house, we don't need it anymore. Marriage is whatever we want it to be in our culture, but that's a lie, because Jesus addresses that, and the truth that Jesus gives, if we can jump ahead to the slide, Kevin, I'm sorry. The truth is that marriage is what God created it to be. So I want you guys to see this with the first questions the Pharisees come to Jesus with in verse 3. In verse 3, we read, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So that was the context. They're saying, Hey, marriage is what you want it to be, and if it doesn't work anymore, and you're like, "Mm, I'm not okay with that, you end it. In this society, the men held all the power and the volition. They were the ones who were allowed to end a marriage, not the women. So they come to Jesus, Hey, is that okay? Can we just end a marriage like that? You know, there was a big debate in Jesus' day about this. In fact, some of the rabbis thought, hey, if she burns your soup, you can cut her off. End it. Seriously. Is that, is that what is? Marriage is whatever you want it to be, they come to Jesus about. And then Jesus responds in verse 4. He said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they come and say, hey, we're trying to figure this out for our day. That what, what is marriage? We're trying to figure it out. We have different opinions on what it is. And Jesus says, hey, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what the creator created it to be from the beginning. Did you notice in this passage, I want you to see this. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator, and there's some little quotation marks, you see that? Made them male and female. Do you know what he's quoting? The first page of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, if you're taking notes. It says the very beginning when God created everything. And I don't know if you've thought about this creation story in a while, but God creates everything. The heavens, the earth, the light, the moon, the stars. He creates the water. He creates our planet and he creates animals. And then on the sixth day, the final day that he creates things, at the climax of his creation, he creates human beings. Did you know that we're the climax of creation? That he made human beings alone in his image. Not even the angels get that tag on them. And he created human beings in his image, male and female, with the differences they are. They are both equally made in God's image and beautiful. That's why we believe as followers of Jesus, as Christians, that every man, woman, and child is part of God's image and deserves dignity and worth. We believe that every person, no matter their mental state, no matter um, their race or ethnicity or their sexual orientation, they are made in God's image. Everyone deserves love and respect. You got that? She says, that's from the beginning. But then he quotes another verse. For this reason, a man... No, we'll, keep, we'll stay back on. Sorry, Kevin. I'm, I'm throwing him for a loop, right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Do you know where he's quoting that from? Genesis chapter 2, the second page of the Bible. Because in the second page of the Bible, after God had given this grand scale of how he created the entire universe, we're going to have a series this fall about that called God and Science. There's a little plug. It's going to be good. But then in the second page, in the second chapter, it goes in a little bit more detailed of how he created men and women. And there's this whole process where God creates the man and he's alone by himself. And do you know of all the things God created, he said everything was good except one thing. Do you know what it was? For man to be alone. 
man to be alone. Because God was teaching us through that process that man needs community, that man needs relationship. And that's why he created the woman. And that's what Jesus is quoting. He's saying, hey, from the beginning, there's this thing called marriage that's created. The two become one flesh. We always kind of joke that, you know, she's my better half. We say that, right? He's my better half. But the Bible doesn't have those concepts. Because the two halves don't become a whole. The two wholes become one whole. Interesting, right? The two become one. And it's interesting because you know who else is called one in the Bible? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And in the same way, when a marriage comes together, these two separate people, two different individuals become one person, one flesh. They care about each other. They are one. They are no longer two. It's not about his and hers, me and mine. No, it's one forever and always. And what maybe is the most significant about this, it's not just that there's marriage, not just that they are man and woman to be combined in marriage, but then Jesus concludes by saying, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He's saying, you think that we get to decide when marriage starts and stops. No, 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 no. Marriage is not what we decide. It is what God has created it to be. I've been an officiant at a bunch of weddings now. In Colorado, anybody can do it, so it doesn't even matter that I'm ordained, right? But when I officiate a wedding, or if maybe some of you do it, <laughs> I married you guys a couple years ago, right? Stephen Kelly right here at the front row. When I, when I did your wedding ceremony, do you guys remember? When I started out, I say it's something like, before God and these witnesses, right? Before God. God is the main witness here. And then at the end, when I do the pronouncement, which does have a legal component, do you know what I say? I say, therefore, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pronounce you husband and wife. Do you remember when I did that for you guys? What God has joined together. I just get to be this vehicle, this vessel for what God has created. I don't get to decide even as a pastor. So what this means is that the creator has created marriage in a certain way. And what this means is that it doesn't matter what a legislature or a judge or a society or a friend or even a pastor or priest says marriage is. What matters is what the creator says. Now I know this is a tough truth and this is going to make you grace people a little uncomfortable. But this is what Jesus says, not me. He says, let's go back to the beginning. You're quoting Moses because that's what they're, they're doing. They're qu- Moses said we could get a divorce. Moses said marriage could be what we want it to be. He says, no, 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 Moses came in Exodus. That's the second book of the Bible. The first book from the beginning, the foundation, what our creator has said is this, one man, one woman, what God has joined together, the two becoming one. And if that's not tough enough, Jesus gets even tougher in the next section because the second lie that Jesus addresses The second lie that Jesus addresses is that marriage is over when I'm unsatisfied. This is the idea we have that marriage is for my satisfaction, that I can get what I want, that I can be served, that I can have the fulfilled life. But what Jesus says is the truth is that marriage is a lifelong covenant. It's a lifelong covenant. It's a lifelong covenant. And when we talk about covenants, most of us have no idea what these are. Maybe you have a covenant with your HOA. But you don't get it. Okay, we think in contracts. And contracts say, I will commit to you, the other party, if you live up to these terms of the agreement. 
You do these things and I'll do these things. It's all about the terms of the agreement. But a covenant is not about terms. It's about two people or two parties. It's about a relationship. You're saying, I'm not committed if you do those things. You're saying, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to you no matter what. That's why it's a covenant and a lifelong covenant that God has created in marriage. So when you commit to people, you can't say, and I hear this all, you know, a lot of times, well, we fell out of love, or that person wasn't who I thought they were when we got married, or we were too young. Well, you've made the commitment to that person, no matter who they are, what they become, or what they do, even if they hurt you deeply. You're committed to that person. It's a covenant. It's a lifelong covenant. It's not over when I decide, when I'm unsatisfied. So Jesus explains this, and we'll, we'll see this right in the passage. Verse 7, they say, well, why then, Jesus, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. He's saying, no, no, this is a lifelong covenant you've committed to. You don't just get to decide like that. It's over. This is a hard word, huh? Uncomfortable for the grace people. We, we look at this and we say, well, there's an exception here. And I, Jesus does give this exception of sexual immorality. But I think he's not really saying this is an exception. Here's why. Because the Bible teaches that sex is not only a physical act. Oh, sure, it's very physical. But it's also a spiritual act. That's why the two persons become one person. That's why they were naked and had no shame in Genesis 2. Because when the two come together, this is a beautiful act. It's a powerful act. And two souls are united together. It's a spiritual thing. And it is so powerful that that is what marriage is. Marriage and sex are like hand and glove in the Bible. They're very, like, they're, they're not supposed to be separated. They go together always. And that's why if someone then has an affair commits sexual immorality, they have already broken the marriage bond. So he says, yeah, that's an exception, but that's because the other person has already broken it. You guys tracking with me? So I do want to say one thing here, because some of you have dealt with this. What I have seen is that if someone has an affair, that does not mean you have to get divorced. Some of the greatest families I've met, couples, relationships, are people that have had affairs and come back from it. And that is maybe the most powerful story of redemption I've ever heard. When I've seen couples do that, and I have, I've seen couples come back from affairs. I've seen couples come back from illegitimate children. And it is so beautiful when they say, I'm committed to you. I've made a covenant lifelong for you. That's hard, but I do want to say that. Just because there has been sexual immorality doesn't mean you have to get a divorce. So that's a little extra point in there. But what I do want us to see as we apply this truth is that those of us who are married, we're committed. We've said it's a lifelong covenant. And that means if you change, if you displease me, if you burn my soup, I still love you. I care about you. And if you're having issues in your relationship, hey, we all do, you're going to go to counseling. You're going to get some help. You're going to go to some couples who are going to encourage you and pray for you. You're going to come see your pastor. You're going to do whatever you can, and you're going to say, hey, if the two become one, this is about serving me through the other person. As I serve that person, as I care for them, as I put their values and their opinions above my own, I'm loving them and caring about them and building up. And in turn, I'm serving myself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, the two become one. If you serve the other, you're serving yourself. 
It's a lifelong covenant we have committed to the other person, not to a list of terms. So this is what Jesus says now, the truth about divorce. And if you thought that was hard, the third one's even harder. The third one's even harder because the lie that Jesus tackles next is that marriage is the only way to satisfaction. The only way to satisfaction. This is what our culture teaches, even a lot of churches and Christians and pastors teach. But it's not true. It's a lie. Satisfaction, fulfillment will never be found in another person. I'm telling you this, if you've been married more than a few months, you know this. Hey, Christopher, you're laughing a little too hard over there. You know, but this is the truth, right? You can't be satisfied. You can't find your fulfillment in another person. And if you're looking for that, if you think it's going to be happily ever after, you will be disappointed. This is the lie that Jesus tells us. If you're looking for, if you think this is the way that I could be satisfied, you're wrong. You're wrong. It is not the only way to satisfaction. In fact, no other relationship, no relationship of any form can provide the satisfaction you need in your life. And that's why Jesus drops another truth bomb when he says that marriage is one of two ways to follow Jesus when it comes to your sexuality. Okay, I'm going to need to spend a lot of time on this one, some extra time. Because I think even Christians have gotten this first one wrong. They've said you have to be married to be satisfied and fulfilled. Well, this is a big problem. Did you know for the first time in American history, more people are single than married? Did you know that? First time. There's a lot of single people. So if the only way to satisfaction is marriage, you're out of luck. Half of you. Or you're going to have to keep looking. You know, go on Christian mingle, right? It's, it's tough, right? It's like, if that's the only way, man... But what Jesus is going to teach us next is that there's actually two ways to follow Jesus in faithfulness. It's not just a heterosexual marriage. There's a second path. This is what I want you guys to see. So in verse 10, the disciples, so now it's not the Pharisees. The Pharisees have already tried to test Jesus twice and he's given them this creation answer going back to the beginning. But now the disciples, and they said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's, if it's committed a covenant to the other person lifelong, no matter what they do, man, I don't want, want that. It's better not to marry. I'll just stay single because, man, I've seen some broken marriages. I don't want that. I want an out. I want an eject, ejection seat, right? Just in case. But then Jesus responds. He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. You guys got that, right? Pay attention right now, because this is confusing. I want you to pay real close attention to this, because this is complicated. Now, Jesus uses a phrase here that we do not use today about eunuchs. Do you know what a eunuch is? There were two reasons in the ancient world why people were eunuchs. Um, in the sense that Jesus is talking here, there, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. Okay, this is a creepy, terrible, awful thing, but the Greeks and the Romans did it. They weren't all they were cracked up to be, right? Okay, I think Athens, Rome, great. No, they were also pretty awful. What they did was, for a couple different reasons, if there was a young boy who had a great high singing voice, before they went through puberty, they would castrate them so they could continue to sing at that high octave for the rest of their lives. Pretty awful, right? There's a second thing that would happen in Jesus' day is that when there was a rich and powerful man, a king or an emperor who had wives 
or a wife or wives or concubines. He didn't want men being around those wives because he wanted those women for himself. So he would castrate men so that they could be the slaves of his wives and concubines and have no sexual desire for them. So that those men could bathe and clothe his wives. Pretty awful again, right? So Jesus is saying, hey, this is a reality in our day and age. There are people who have been made eunuchs by others. They didn't have a choice in this. It's pretty awful, and it's a terrible thing, and it's a good thing that we don't really know about that, at least in our culture. It does exist in the world. Jesus is saying, hey, there's some people like that that do not have a sexual desire for people of the opposite sex because they were made that way by others. And then Jesus said there's a third type of eunuchs. There are those who choose to live like eunuchs. And choose to live like eunuchs actually in the Greek is the same word as made eunuchs. So they make themselves eunuchs. And he's not saying people castrate themselves. He's not. What he's saying is that people choose, even though they have a sexual attraction, they choose not to act on it out of faithfulness to the kingdom of God. But then what's interesting is the first type of eunuchs he says. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. Now, it could be people who are biologically born like that. But I think it may also include the people who say, I have been born in a way that I do not have sexual desire for people of the opposite sex. This is literally the phrase we use in our society, right? They're songs, born that way, right? Born this way. And we say that, but what Jesus is saying is all of these groups of people have been given a word that singleness is actually a faithful path to follow Jesus. And this is, remember, this is what Jesus is saying. Not me. He says, those who can accept it should accept it. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, hey, we hold up marriage. We think it's great. Christians especially, we have focus on the family. I grew up in Colorado Springs with focus on the family. You saw all the bumper stickers that said, focus on your own bleep family. If you've seen those all over the place when I was a kid. We focused on that so much that single people kind of get left in the dust and they're less than, they're not okay. But what Jesus is saying is there's two equal, beautiful paths to faithfulness of Jesus. Marriage or singleness. You guys tracking with me? So that's why I'm saying that marriage is not the path to personal satisfaction. Marriage is one of two paths to following Jesus in faithfulness because Jesus alone provides our satisfaction. So I want to focus on this one for a minute because I know that this is maybe the hardest one for us today. Christopher Yon um, has two great books If you ever heard him talk or read his books, I I recommend both of them. He has a book um, called Out of a Far Country that he co-wrote with his mom and then another one called Holy Sexuality. Well, Christopher Yon, and I'll talk about him a little bit more later in my message, was a man who was uh, a gay man. He was out as a gay man. He was uh, involved in lots of different relationships. And um, his parents kind of hated him. We'll we'll talk about that. When he came out, they were really judgmental. Um, I'll talk about that in a little bit. But then he became a Christian eventually. And then he has now uh, written a couple books on sexuality because he has chosen to live a life of celibacy out of faithfulness to Jesus. And he says, what we need is a new term because a lot of people think heterosexual marriage is the only way. That's why people have promoted conversion therapy. Well, he's saying, hey, I came to Christ and I still have my sexual attraction. Same one. It hasn't changed. Now, some people say that it can change, but he's saying, hey, that didn't change. What we need is a new term. Because heterosexual marriage is not the only path of faithfulness to Jesus. There's also a path of singleness. And that's why he created this term he calls holy sexuality in his book. 
So in it, he defines it as holy sexuality consists of two paths, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Chastity is more than simply abstention from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. Faithfulness, too, is more than merely maintaining chastity and avoiding illicit sex. It conveys covenantal commitment. He's saying we need to think of this as this holy, beautiful path of following Jesus, whichever of these two paths we choose. And it's more than just, I'm not going to have sex. No, we're choosing to be faithful then to our bride, who is Christ. But we're the bride of Christ. And then he says, faithfulness in marriage is not just, oh, I haven't had an affair. No, 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 no. It is complete faithfulness and covenantal commitment. It's much more than that. See, we don't put up either one of these, but I think that's what we need to. That What Jesus is talking about here, that I think Christopher Yon defines pretty well, is holy sexuality. Holy sexuality. And it's tough in our culture to talk about this because we have bought into the lie. In fact, who do we make fun of in our society? The 40-year-old virgin, don't we? We make fun of it. He's the object of scorn and derision. We make movies mocking a 40-year-old virgin. How can someone be a virgin that long? But do you know about our Savior? He was a 33-year-old virgin. Did you know that? Never married, never had sexual relations, never had a child, and yet he was the perfect example of following God and obedience. Did you know that? So when we look at this idea that there's two equal, beautiful paths to follow Jesus, it could be a powerful thing. And I know some of you are saying, well, Matt, that's, that's too hard of a word, that's difficult. And the reality is I don't know what it's like to live with same-sex attraction. I don't. And if you want to talk with me, I'd love to hear from you because that's something that I personally don't have. But I do know that singleness can be a beautiful and powerful way to follow Jesus. I have a friend, Brian, who's been in ministry now for a few years. And I remember years ago told me, he said, man, I think I might have the gift of singleness. So I called him up. I said, hey, let's just talk about this because what does that mean to you? What is, what is it like? So he said this week, he said, well, Matt... Uh, gift might, might not be the right term because this is a, what I've chosen. And just in, in case you're wondering, singleness is default for everybody. You have to choose marriage. Okay? Right? So he, he said, yeah, Matt, uh, there may be a, a time where I will marry. I, I don't know. But I know that for right now, singleness is actually really good for me, and I love it. I said, really? Tell me about that. He said, don't get me wrong. I'm lonely sometimes. Sometimes it's very hard to be lonely. He said, but I have married friends. And I know they can be just as lonely. And he said, and I would rather be lonely and miserable as a single man than lonely and miserable in marriage. Because you know what people do when they're lonely and miserable in marriage? They get a divorce. Right? Because it's hard when you're sharing a house with someone when you're lonely and miserable and they're lonely and miserable. Okay? And I'm not condoning divorce. We already talked about that in our second truth, right? But what I am saying, and from Brian, he was saying, hey, this is a good, beautiful thing. And he said, you know, there's a lot of benefits to being single. I said, oh, yeah? He's like, yeah, I can do whatever I want. He said, after work, when I'm going out and I'm hanging out and I ask my married friends, hey, you want to go hang out? You want to grab a beer? They're like, oh, I'll check with my wife. And he said, but I can just do whatever I want. I can hang out with whoever I want, whenever I want. He said, even greater in ministry, because he's, he, he's doing this like full time, but um, actually part time now. But he's saying, hey, when I do ministry, I can do whatever I want. He said, can you do that, Matt? And I was like, no, I have to be with my wife, with my daughter. I, I have to focus on them because they're my ministry. He said, yeah, Matt. And when I want to go do homeless ministry in downtown Nashville, where he lives, 
said, I can go do whatever I want. I don't have to tell anybody. I can spend the night sleeping on the street with a homeless man if I want to minister to him and love him. Show him how much Jesus loves him. He's like, I can do whatever I want. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's an interesting way to think about it. And he said, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful, powerful thing. And he said, of course, I still have temptation. Of course, I still have temptation. But I've chosen faithfulness to Jesus this way. And he said, it's a beautiful thing. And I think that's awesome. I think we should elevate people like that and show, hey, these are two equal, beautiful paths to following Jesus. Because here's the thing. Every single one of us, whichever path you choose, will still have sexual desires that fall outside of faithfulness to Jesus. Tracking with me? Just because you get married to someone in a heterosexual marriage doesn't mean you won't have sexual attraction to someone outside of your spouse, right? Yeah, it doesn't cure it. We still have desires and attractions that kind of fall outside of what the truth that Jesus teaches. So, we see this in this passage, and this truth maybe is the hardest one for us here, especially those of us who are the grace people. We don't want to talk about it, but what Jesus is saying is that this is the path of faithfulness. I talked with Sawyer about this message this week, and he, he said something really good, so I'm quoting him. This is Sawyer Trap here, your very own. He said, our ultimate satisfaction is not found in who we love, but in Jesus who loves us. A relationship with another person can never satisfy, no matter who we are, no matter what our sexual orientation or persuasion. No person can do that, but Jesus can. Jesus is the one who loves us unconditionally and cares about us deeply. And I think what's really amazing is that at the end of this chapter, as Jesus gave this teaching, these three truths about marriage and sexuality, he concludes this chapter by saying this. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? There are people when they follow me that they will have relationships that will no longer work. They will leave those things. But whatever you leave, Jesus said, whatever you leave for my sake, because we all leave something when we follow Jesus. Whatever you leave, you will gain back a hundred times as much. Your loss will be infinite reward. It's worth it to follow me this way, even though it may be one of the hardest things you ever do. That's what Jesus said, not me. Okay, I just made all the grace people uncomfortable, right? What about the truth people? We need to look at the life of Jesus. We need to look closely at how Jesus handled this. He taught that truth. But then he showed grace and compassion and acceptance of others unlike anyone else. When Jesus had this woman come in front of him, caught in the middle of adultery, she was having an affair and caught there. When she was ashamed in front of everybody as they were trying to shame her, bringing in front of all the men to stand witness, what are you going to do? What does Jesus say? You are no longer condemned. I don't condemn you. I give you grace and mercy and compassion. They treated you like someone with a scarlet letter. They looked down on you. They had shame in their eyes towards you. But you know what? I accept you and love you. When Jesus is sitting with this woman at the well in John chapter 4, you've heard this story? There's this woman who went to the well in the middle of the day. And if you've ever thought about it, in the Middle East, at noon, you don't want to carry gallons of water in the desert miles 
But why did she go in the middle of the day? Because she had sexual sin in her past and present. She was afraid and ashamed of herself, and so she hid from the other women who went in the morning when it was cool. But Jesus alone was there to talk to this woman. Nobody would even go near her. But he sat down with her, shared a cup of water with her, spoke with her, loved her. And it became clear in the conversation that she had been divorced five times and was living with another man who was not her husband. And Jesus was like, get out of here. I can't be near you. No, do you know what he did? He said, I have living water for you. I love you. He had compassion for her. He invited her, in a sense, to follow him. And then Jesus, he is called the friend of sinners because again and again he went with the prostitutes, hanging out with them, caring about them when no one would even touch them. They wouldn't go near him, talk to them. Jesus spent time with them. He was called the friend of sinners. They berated him and chided him for spending time with them. Do you know about Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. That she had been possessed by several demons. But when she came to Jesus, Jesus welcomed her. He loved her. And when she was weeping and washed his feet with her hair, Jesus didn't say, get away from me. No, he loved her and accepted her and said, this is one of the most beautiful gifts anyone will ever do for me. And she became one of his disciples with all that past. See, Jesus was not afraid of anyone with no matter their sexual sin or past. He loved them and accepted them and cared for them. They became his followers. See, Jesus shows us how we too must act towards people that we even look at and we say, who are they? Well, how could they do that? How could they be living in that type of relationship? We need to be like Jesus and love those people, accept them, care about them. No matter who they are, what they've done, no matter what their sexual persuasion, no matter what relationship type they're in, we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to care about those people. When they come to you with a past of one night stands and multiple partners, we're going to love those people and care about them because they need the hope and the healing of Jesus, don't they? When there's people who have been divorced multiple times and are in broken relationship after broken relationship, we love them and care about them. We help them through divorce because that's nasty and hard. We care about them and love them and their kids the whole time. When there are people that come out to us, we love them even more. We listen to them and we say, thank you so much for entrusting me with that. I love you so much and I will always love you and give them a big hug because we love everyone just like Jesus did, accepting everyone no matter what their past or even their present is. See how I'm making the truth people uncomfortable now? Jesus calls us to this type of lifestyle. He calls us to a lifestyle of helping the single people. We forget about the single people, those of us who are married, that especially on holidays... They might not have somewhere to go. Do we invite them into our home? Do we care about them and love them? Because their community, as my friend Brian said, he's like, that's one of the most important things. He said, I have to be in my small group every week. I have to. I need those friends. We need to be the friends, if those of us who are married, to those who are single. That's what we need to be if we want to be the people who hold grace just as firmly as we hold truth. Just like Jesus. Full of grace. Full of truth. Always we invite them into our home. We care about them. They are our friends, our families, our loved ones. We love them just like Jesus loved them, full of grace and truth. Christopher Yon, I t- told you I was going to tell a little bit more about his story. But his parents were very judgmental of him when he came out. And they weren't Christians at the time. But then a few years later, they became Christians. They tell this in their story uh, out of a far country. And... He was afraid one day because his friend 
uh, was dying of AIDS. This was in the 90s. He was living in Louisville, and his parents lived in Chicago, where this man, his friend who had been a gay performer that he knew very well, was dying of AIDS. So he went to go visit this guy in the hospital, and he said it was really sad, not only because his body was emaciated, that it was broken down, that he was dying, but he said the saddest part was that no one was there with him. None of his fans, none of his friends, none of his lovers. He was alone. Chris Freon decided he needed to stay the night there, and this is when... So, so he called up his mom who lived there and said, Hey, Mom, I'm here in town, and explained why. And she said, Okay, I'm going to be there in just a minute. And he, knowing that she had become a Christian, was like, No, 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 no. Uh, and was worried what, what she would said, but she showed up with her, his dad at the hospital anyways. And he said that the, his parents put on their gowns, put on their gloves and masks, and all he could see was compassion in their eyes. As they sat and talked with him and his dying friend and they loved him and cared for them and had great conversation. And he said, my my parents didn't bring up any of the tough topics because they just wanted to have a loving time with this man who needed love. And he said, "I, I know a lot of people experience the opposite, that their Christian friends and family are rude to them and awful. And he said, but I experienced the opposite. I experienced more love for them once they became Christians because that's what followers of Jesus do. We love and accept all people. And that would eventually lead Christopher Young to become a follower of Jesus. And then he went to Moody Bible Institute. And now he's a professor there. And when I called my friend Brian this week, he said, Oh yeah, I had Christopher Young as one of my professors. And that may be one of the reasons why he sees that singleness is a beautiful and great thing. And I just was like, well, that blew my mind just how that came full circle this week. And I bring all this up because we are called to be people like that, like Jesus, full of grace and truth, compassion to everyone, welcoming everyone, hugging them, caring about them. We are called to be like Jesus, who saw our sin, even our sexual sin, our past. All of us have been broken in some way. And he sees that and he still was willing to die on the cross for us. Every single one of us has broken that commandment. We've all sinned, sexually and otherwise, and yet Jesus died for us. So if you are here today, and you have a sexual past, multiple partners, and you're ashamed of what has been done, you have guilt that you've been carrying around for so long, Jesus has grace for you. If you are here and you've been through multiple relationships and they've been broken, you've been through divorce, God has grace for you in Jesus Christ. If you are here and you're dealing with a sexual attraction that's different than everyone else, well, guess what? Jesus has grace for you. He has love for you and compassion for you. If you're single and struggling and you're lonely, Jesus has compassion for you. No matter who we are, Jesus has compassion. And we need that today, don't we? We need His grace. We need His blood to be shed for us. And that's why it was shed. Because all of us are sinners. And we need that grace. And we in turn need to give that grace to others. I want you to get this. That God's truth about sexuality is clear. But our grace... For all must be just as clear. Let's pray. Lord God, we hear, we, we come before you as sinners, each one of us. There are people in here who have been looking at pornography, Lord God. You have grace for them in affairs that have, have broken relationships, divorce. They have guilt. They're in sexual relationships right now that are not honoring to you, Lord God. But you have grace for them. You love them and you accept them, Lord God. Let them accept that grace today. Lord God, for the person here who's struggling right now and needs that forgiveness, Lord, I pray that they would be able to accept it this morning as they say, I will follow you, Jesus. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. And would they feel that grace unlike ever before and know that you love them just the way they are. 
Lord, you love us just as we are and you have called us your sons and daughters that no matter what we have done or what we are doing, you forgive us if we turn to you in repentance and we accept that gift, Lord God. And I pray that we would accept it, that we would have that forgiveness and we would walk out of here knowing that we are your children, that we are called your sons and daughters because you loved us there on the cross. And Lord God, because of that love, we worship and praise you. Amen.